0: Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. In mid-July, President Donald Trump unleashed a Twitter storm directed at the so-called Squad, four Democratic U.S. Congresswomen who are also people of color. Several prominent news outlets have taken the unusual step of labeling the president's tweets as racist in content, and that has triggered a discussion about how the media approaches issues of race. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, veteran journalist and former executive director of the Minnesota News Council, Gary Gilson, joins us by phone to offer his insights. Gary, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota.
1: Thank you, Jim. It's always great to talk with you.
0: Gary, for the benefit of listeners who may not be familiar with the Minnesota News Council, tell us more about the organization and its submission.
1: Well, it's an organization that was founded by the Minnesota Newspaper Association. Some of the leaders there convinced the uh, members of the association that it would be a benefit to the news media to be more open, less defensive, and to be transparent with the readership, uh, and to deal with complaints by listening to them and responding. And uh, the Minnesota News Council provided a forum for that. The News Council had no authority to uh, issue any punishment to anybody if The council found that the complaint was justified, and the council didn't want any authority, because if it had any authority, then the news organizations wouldn't participate. So it was a victory to have them come in and sit down and listen and then respond. And over the 40 years that the news council existed, half the complaints filed by readers were upheld and half were denied, and in every case there was something to be learned by everybody. Uh, It was a a wonderful process to let air and light in. And it helped the news media because other news organizations in the state, including the broadcasters, uh, began to participate. And uh, we took a survey, oh, probably 35 years into the existence of the News Council and asked news directors and editors around the state what they thought about the process. And they said, that they had learned that if they were open with people who called, who had a concern, that they developed trust in the community. And of course, without trust, the news organization is worthless. So I think it was a great experiment to begin with. It worked out to be a useful tool. And uh, uh, unfortunately, the uh, economy uh, was a, a contributor to the demise of the News Council. But also the fact that news organizations, newspapers in particular, began to publish the email addresses of reporters. And people who had complaints might email a reporter to say, I don't like what you wrote. But no matter how they communicated with them, it was in private. And the value of the News Council was that all these discussions took place in public and were covered by the news media. There were some very famous cases and there were some. Cases that seemed obscure, but even those cases involving a small-town newspaper or a small-town radio station had value for everybody because uh, the lessons about ethics and about uh, standards and practices applied
0: universally. Gary, we're going to be talking today about uh, news media coverage on issues of race. Let me ask you this. When you were at the News Council, was there ever a situation that arose where there was a complaint against a news organization for having a racial bias or not representing racial issues in an ethical manner?
1: Yes, and it turned out to be one of the most famous cases that we ever had. The Star Tribune devoted a great deal of space after devoting a lot of time to research and reporting. On the nine months of a young girl's pregnancy, she was, I think, 15 or 16 years old. Her mother approved of the daughter being the subject of this story. Well, they devoted more than a full page, I think, with photographs to this girl's experience. And the young girl was black. Uh, She did not complain. Her mother did not complain. But a group of black citizens did complain and said, in a state in which the percentage of the population that is black is uh, minuscule, you mean to tell us you couldn't find a white girl who was pregnant to do a story on? You're reinforcing a stereotype about loose morals among black people. That was the nature of the complaint. The Star Tribune came out and said to the news council, well, we did a, a thorough job of reporting with the cooperation of the mother and daughter, and uh, we stand by our story. The News Council voted to deny the complaint uh, and said that the paper had done a, uh, a good job. And here is the punchline. The newspaper, the Star Tribune, went back to its office and instead of gloating about its so-called victory of the News Council, ran a bold-faced box on page one, I think, of the local section, in which the publisher of the paper said essentially this, Jim. We know that you know that we don't do a very good job of covering communities of color. Uh, We uh, learn from this experience what our shortcomings are, and we vow to do better. And we hope that you will let us know if you think we are doing better. That is the single most vulnerable public statement by any news organization I've ever seen anywhere. And I think it's to the great credit of the Star Tribune that they did that. Now, they did improve their coverage, but I don't think any news organization that I know of does well enough in covering matters of race.
0: Gary, is part of the issue that there are not enough people of color in newsrooms?
1: That is a big factor because everybody has filters in their life and in the way they see things and the way they report things. And if you don't have people of color in your newsroom, you're missing out on important perspectives. We had a situation when I was at the news council where the mayor of Minneapolis, Sharon Sales-Belton, formed a uh, thing called the Minneapolis Initiative Against Racism. Uh, There was a committee on uh, education, a committee on jobs, one on housing, one on the media. And I joined the media task force. There were about 10 of us. I was the only one who was a professional journalist. And the goal of that committee was to try to encourage the news media to be more open to covering things in in communities of color that were positive. I don't mean ribbon cutting, uh, you know, or PR events. I mean the quality of life, instead of just showing young black men in handcuffs, which was the norm in those days. Uh, and so on that committee was a, a black man named Ersey Allen. Uh, and Irsy had been an engineer of some kind uh, and became a professional photographer. And he took a team of three or four members of the committee out to a local television station to talk to them about their coverage of communities of color. And this is what happened, and I think it's priceless. Ersi was a very sophisticated man. Uh, And instead of going in and sitting down and saying, you're a bunch of racists, uh, that would have produced a lose-lose situation. Uh, He accepted their gracious welcome and their coffee and cookies, and then he asked this question, who is your target audience? And the station answered very quickly, the second ring of suburbs. Well, why do you think that's so? it's because the second ring of suburbs is the target of the advertisers, because that's where the money is. And so Earthy then said, in a very calm voice, he said, "Uh, so then why, if that's your target, are the first 15 minutes of your newscast uh, very often black-on-black crime in the inner city? And the station didn't know what to say they hadn't even thought of it. Because from their perspective and their understanding of the narrative of white America, that didn't penetrate. But after he got them to think about that, they actually changed their pattern of coverage. So you see, when people have a complaint or a concern, and they present it in a very civil way, there's a possibility of progress.
0: Well, we want to talk about a couple of recent news events. First of all, President Trump, a couple of weeks ago, initiated a Twitter war with the so-called Squad. It consists of four U.S. House of Representatives members, all of whom are women of color. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, and Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. Uh, in the uh, the tweet storm that President uh, Trump unleashed, he suggested that these women should go back to where they came from and uh, fix the places uh, from which they had come. And uh, go back to where you came from has long been associated with uh, a racial undertone. Uh, we have seen that numerous news organizations pounced on those series of tweets and um, said that uh, the president of the United States has... Uh, tweeted something that is racist in its meaning. How unprecedented is it for major news organizations to actually call a statement racist, particularly by the President of the United States?
1: It is unprecedented, and it follows uh, the example of news organizations traditionally never saying someone lied, particularly a person in power, uh, a corporate head or a government head, and the President of the United States. Well, the Washington Post uh, has uh, documented something like 10,000 or 11,000 lies that this current president has told, and uh, as a result of uh, their decision, uh, many other news organizations now will use the word lie. Uh, in the past, they would have a euphemism for it, or they'd they write around it. Uh, and in the way that happened, this thing about racism has happened also, and It's not that the mainstream news organizations will say the president is a racist. They will say that what he said was racist. Uh, Now, there's been a debate in the news business in the last few weeks when all of this happened about whether it's sufficient to say this is what the president said and uh, other people are accusing him of using racist language on the one hand. On the other hand, coming out and saying, what he said was racist. A flat statement by the news organization. So that's a current debate now on whether you should use one approach or the other.
0: Do news organizations have an ethical responsibility to describe certain language and actions as racist?
1: Uh, I would say yes. I would say that no matter what the subject, whether it's about race or anything else, it's more important to help the public understand what a story is about beyond just giving the facts, And I don't mean editorial opinion. I'm talking about interpretation, context. So, for example, if the president does something that uh, is perceived as racist, let's talk about what he said about the Nazi demonstrators in Charlottesville, that you can merely report what he said and what happened there in Charlottesville, or you can add a paragraph of context that says, This is the sort of thing that happened back when someone someone else did this. That's interpretation, and that's not editorial opinion. Uh, It's just stating facts, but it's placing the event that you're reporting on in context. And I, from my own experience as a reporter, uh, and what I've learned from people with far more experience than I had when I was a young reporter, it's very important to have interpretive reporting uh, and analysis. And that falls far short of giving an editorial opinion. You're not making up the audience's mind for it. You're helping them understand so they can
0: make up their own mind. Do you think this is something that news organizations really want to do? In other words, do they want to be the arbiters of what is racist? Or would they rather remain neutral and have their readers or listeners or viewers decide for themselves?
1: Well, I don't think that these uh, news organizations that are crossing the line and going beyond attributing those accusations to somebody else and are making a flat statement that something is racist. I think that there's some news organizations that shoot from the hip and they will just say it's racist or he's racist. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those particular cases in which the statement is so blatantly racist that it can be identified as such and not where it's marginal. So, I think that this is uh, new ground, and it's good to have a debate about how to do it. But what's so important, as far as I'm concerned, because most of my career in television, was concentrating on uh, race relations in America. And I think it's so important to put it up in eyesight so that people will even think and talk about it instead of burying it. It's, you know, race and class are the two factors of American life that are least discussed in the news media.
0: Gary, do you know of many news organizations that have policies when it comes to how they address racial issues? And uh, if so, are these policies sufficient in this political climate?
1: I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that uh, news organizations and their umbrella associations are always talking about increasing uh, representation in the newsroom of people of color. And they're always reporting a year later that they fell short of their target. Uh, And it's a continuing battle to try to get people uh, into the news organization who can provide a different perspective. Uh, I have an experience myself when we were training people of color at Columbia University to become reporters for mainstream news organizations. This is back in the late 60s and early 70s we produced the first wave of people of color to work in television and radio news. Uh, There were hardly any to speak of before that. And uh, these are not uh, street-corner kids who who were in trouble with the law. These are 26-year-olds, on average, young men and women who were people of color, who were college graduates, who could think clearly and who could write decently. And they had guaranteed jobs waiting for them after they went through our 11-week training session. Uh, And many of them have have performed wonderfully in the business for many years. Well, uh, one day when we were assigning stories to send them out into the streets of New York to cover news, there was a sanitation worker strike and garbage was piling up all over the city and it stank. And uh, I had a camera crew and a young reporter, uh, and I said, why don't you go down to 86th Street and Broadway and cover this story? And Dale Wright, who was a black reporter, who was one of the great reporters in America, another member of the faculty, said to me, Gary, that's an upper-middle-class white neighborhood. Why don't you send the crew to Harlem where the problem is even worse? And I said, we'll do that. And I thanked him, and I think that's a perfect example of having a different set of eyes in the newsroom. Um, You know, he didn't have to jump up and down. He just made a suggestion based on his life experience. And I bought it immediately because I think he was right.
0: Let's talk about how journalists of color are affected by how a newsroom covers racial issues. Do you think, Gary, that uh, journalists of color often feel pressure to be the conscience of a newsroom, especially when it has to deal with uh, stories that have a racial component?
1: Uh, Many of them do, and some don't. And the ones who don't are really trying to avoid getting involved in that. For reasons of their own. Uh, But there are many people of color who work in newsrooms who are concerned about the coverage of stories uh, and how they're going to be covered, and about stories that don't get covered, uh, about quality of life. Look at this thing that's happening in Baltimore, uh, where the president says it's rat-infested and no human being would want to live there, and now he's being accused of racist comment. The question is, How are the media in Baltimore covering poor neighborhoods, if at all? I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, When I was at the News Council, we had a visitor come up here from Charlotte, North Carolina. She was the managing editor of the Charlotte uh, Observer, a very fine newspaper. Uh, And she said that they got a grant from the Knight Foundation to do a series of stories on five neighborhoods in Charlotte. I think three of them were black and two were white or mixed. And she told her staff that they were going to go out and do this, Uh, and she said, they don't trust us in the black neighborhoods because we either don't cover them or when we do, it's about kids in handcuffs. And she said, let's try to build some trust out there and, and do some stories about positive things in their neighborhoods. And one of the grizzled veteran reporters said to her, You want fluff? I can do fluff. And he huffed out of the newsroom and he said, I'll go do it. But there was resentment among some of the white staff for having to do what they considered puff pieces. But the fact is that when they got out there and did some positive stories, members of the black communities there approached them and began to tip them off to serious stories in that neighborhood, things that were, were matters of great concern for public health and safety, crime. And so by building trust, they were able to do terrific stories. And the punchline to this is that woman, who was the managing editor who visited us here, said that she'd lived in Charlotte for many, many years. But until she read all the stories about those five neighborhoods, she said, I never knew as much about Charlotte as I did after we did that series, because they shined a light on how people live. That, to me, is one of the great failings of news media and the great opportunities. Uh, a friend of mine said, in journalism education, we're always teaching students the five Ws. Who, what, when, where, and why. And he said it's uh, equally important or more important to have the letter H. How? How do we live today? And if you do live in journalism and go hang out in neighborhoods, find out what's really happening, uh, and report back, you let people know that, Uh, This is what life is like in that neighborhood. This is something to be emulated or this is something to be fixed. And that's one of the great roles of journalism, is to let people know what's real in the community.
0: Gary, you mentioned the situation involving Baltimore. That, of course, was a Trump tweet critical of U.S. Representative Elijah Cummings, who is a representative of that area, Maryland's 7th Congressional District. And he is also the chair of the House Oversight Committee, which has subpoenaed uh, emails of various members of the Trump staff, including some of his family members, uh, emails that uh, may have been placed on a private server. This would be government business related emails. He lashed out at Cummings, saying that uh, Cummings's district is rat-infested, among other things. And the Baltimore Sun fired back in an op-ed piece recently. Probably, Gary, and uh, I want to ask you this, you've been around a long time and have been a consumer of media as well as a journalist. I can never recall a newspaper crafting an op-ed piece that attacked a president in the way that piece did in response to what it said was Trump's racist comments. Have you, have you seen anything like that? And for the benefit of our listeners, we would encourage them to go and find that op-ed. It was strongly worded unlike anything I had ever seen before.
1: Well, I think you have to go pretty far back in history to find uh, something like that. Uh, I can't think of anything specific. But this is a special case because you have a president who is different from all other presidents in that respect, Uh, because, uh, you know, the other presidents didn't have Twitter. He has it, and he has harnessed it to uh, take advantage of any opportunity to trumpet his own programs or to criticize others or to deflect attention from problems in his administration. So that's unprecedented. So for them to uh, talk so directly and criticize him personally that way, that's partly uh, a response to what he does in his Twitter feed. But it's also because you have a very unusual person in the White House. Now, I don't know everything about American history, but if I just go back uh, through the recent presidents, uh, Obama and the Bushes and, and uh, Clinton and Carter and LBJ and Harry Truman uh, and John Kennedy, uh, they were different kinds of personalities. And as far as I know, President Trump never really dreamed he would be president. And now he's president, and he has a personality which is very egocentric, and uh, he doesn't like anything that criticizes him. And so I think that he contributes to this kind of a response that the Baltimore Sun made.
0: Trump has been criticized by the National Association of Black Journalists over his treatment of black female reporters, How do or how should newsrooms respond when their reporters face racism on the job?
1: Oh, I think they have to point it out. I think that no matter who your reporter is, whether your reporter is white or of any other color, uh, that if uh, if somebody's attacking a reporter and it is not justified, uh, that that's got to be pointed out. Uh, How about that guy out in the prairie country? I forget where it was, and he punched a reporter. That's right, yes. Uh, You know, that's got to be pointed out. But, uh, you know, I think this president used the media like a a genius when he lived in New York. Uh, He manipulated them uh, to his advantage, and he doesn't like it when anybody points out anything that could be a shortcoming. And here's what I would challenge the news media to do, and I haven't seen it happen. He is constantly saying fake news. I want a reporter to say to him, okay, Mr. President, please point out in this story what is fake. I haven't seen that kind of a challenge. And you don't have to be hostile to do it. As a matter of fact, if you are hostile to him, you lose. You just have to be calm and professional and say, what is it about this story that's fake? and you'll find out whether he can prove that it's fake
0: or not. Gary Gilson is the former executive director of the Minnesota News Council. He is also a veteran journalist, journalism educator, and a writing coach. Gary, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota.
1: Well, it's great to talk about such important things, especially with you. Thanks, Jim.
0: Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. Fifty years ago, the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and the University of Minnesota created a partnership that continues to have a profound impact on economic theory and policy. Several young economics professors were instrumental in forging this partnership and became known as the Four Horsemen of Minnesota Economics. We'll learn more about them, their enduring impact on economics, and an upcoming event on the U of M campus where all four will discuss contemporary economic issues. Don't forget to visit us at DialogueMinnesota.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next time.